In today's episode of Sam Talks Telehealth, I'm looking at who will be the in-person partner for virtual first companies. And I think what's super important here is if we look at digital health venture funding, Rock Health put out their quarterly report. And what we see already is that venture-backed companies have raised $14.7 billion in the first half of 2021. And that sum surpasses the total year of 2020. So what's very important is that we know VC money is flooding into the digital health space. It's not flooding into hospital space, but we know there definitely is going to need to be an in-person partner. So let's look at some of the companies that are really in this space. And a lot of this space, what's so interesting, is focused on what hospitals would consider loss leaders, um, non-procedural based specialties, the things that from a hospital standpoint are not money makers, but still incredibly large slice of the healthcare pie. So we look at Omada Health. It's one of the most highly valued digital health companies. They've raised more than $250 million. In 2019, on that former raise, they had, it was valued at 600 million. And so now, you know, two years later, certainly that valuation is going to be higher, well past um, unicorn status. And if we look at here, the kinds of things they're covering, again, diabetes, MSK, that's digital MSK, not in person. This is a virtual first type of company, hypertension, behavioral health, all the things in the hospital perspective are not money makers. Now look at Hinge Health, digital MSK. They just in 2021 had another $300 million uh, Series D raise. They have a $3 billion evaluation, $200 million in revenue. And crazy enough, 50% of employees on employer sponsor plans already have access to Hinge Health. And they're exploring expansion into the comorbidities of back pain and MSK, looking at mental health, obesity, diabetes. So again, we see venture capital backing virtual first companies and really in these sectors of the market that for traditional hospitals, traditional health systems really are loss leaders because they are non-procedural based services and specialties. So um, another article out of Business Group on Health, Large Employer Care Strategy um, Plan Design Survey in 2020. 70% of employers plan to have a digital MSK solution by 2023. Now, the question becomes, should health systems be in the digital MSK game or how do they really look at this? And I look at it in a way of how can we actually be some type of partnership. Because let's take for a moment out of SG2, we have the 2019 side of care volume and a 10-year forecast. So this was um, done uh, 2019 and there were projections through 2029. And I think what's super important here is that we look at that bucket there where it's showing volume in um, virtual care, 29% of all E&M visits done virtually by 2029. Now, of course, right now, um, at the time of this recording, it is uh, July 2021, and people could be arguing like, well, yeah, sure, during the pandemic, you know, virtual care really rose, but then it dropped off. But the reality is, that genie, as everyone's been saying, that is out of the bottle. And the place that we see the, the volume of virtual care dropping is also really in our hospital-based facilities. And if we look at it from a practicality and an ROI standpoint, 
Pro fees only are less reimbursement than when you come in in person. When you come in in person, you get a clinic fee plus, or a facility fee plus your pro fee. And so the reality is, from an ROI perspective, it is not surprising. It's not surprising that patients are being asked to come back into clinic. But if we also see, we know we're going to have an increase over time of hospital um, outpatient ASC types of procedures, right? And then of course we see a deep reduction in urgent. At retail care, and then of course the home will have an expo um, expansion. And I do kind of see home and virtual care can have some really important links together. But I think right now what's important to remember is this urgent care retail, even though we see big providers like, you know, partnerships between CVS and, and different um, on-site types of providers, concierge type of providers. I think it's yet to be determined if that really is going to be the solution for success. What we do know overall, though, is that we will definitely see a reduction in urgent retail care. Also, if we look at this map, again, we see this growth, 29% of E&M visits delivered virtual, virtually by 2029. And we're seeing this care journey, right? The different ways patients can interact in the different sites. And we see this shift from inpatient and outpatient procedure shift into this outpatient shuffle, right? A proceduralist office, ASCs. But I think what's important here is oftentimes how health systems look at maps like this is that they have control over the flow, right? I'm taking my own inpatient and outpatient procedure shift from a hospital setting and I'm moving it into my procedural office or my ASC. But I think what oftentimes can go overlooked is if we think of Hinge Health, we think of Omada, we think of the list far beyond that of people who are actually the digital front door, the virtual front door for the patients. Those are the decision makers in where the referral goes when a procedure is needed. And as we know for any hospital system, our referral patterns are incredibly important. And so what does that lead us to understand about how do we influence this shift? How do we get on the back end of the rise of procedures, knowing that the traditional setting from where that care delivery is happening, where that referral is happening, is vastly, vastly changing due to virtual first. But let's take a minute, make sure we're all on the same page about what is virtual first. Now, virtual first just had its definition defined by um, DIME and IMPACT, which is an IMPACT virtual first medical collaboration practice. This definition was announced here in June 2021 at ATA. And so it is medical care for individuals or community assessed through digital interactions where possible, guided by a clinician and integrated into a person's everyday life. Definition, that's now on the table so that we all know V1C, virtual first care, is a thing. But let's talk about what are the characteristics of virtual care. So one, uh, ability to initiate care anywhere, anytime through telecommunication and digital technology. Intentional selection of care setting matched to a person's clinical needs and preferences with some aspects safely and effectively delivered virtually and others necessitating in-person care. Don't forget that last sentence in a virtual first care characteristic. Complete solutions that support a person to take all the necessary next steps in their healthcare journey and adherence to all the applicable laws, safety standards, standard of care, security, privacy, privacy rights. So here's the thing. 
virtual first need in-person partners, right? And so as a hospital system, thinking about where do you excel? Where do you do the best? Where are your highest margins? It's in procedures. And whether that's a comfortable topic or not out in public, it's certainly what we talk about in stakeholder meetings and board meetings and you know CFO meetings. The reality is procedures increase case mix, bigger margins. And so how does a hospital position themselves to be a partner? Because I think what's really, really important to remember also is that a lot of virtual first companies are like skeptical of hospitals. They may have been hospital uh, staff, employees, doctors, workers. They may have rebelled against hospitals through their own patient or family experiences. So we've got to think about how do I become a great partner? And what you want to be is the preferred procedurist and hospital for the virtual first companies. Because virtual first companies are going direct to employer, direct to player, payer, and they are doing direct contracting. And so an advantage here is let them play the profi only or the direct contracting role, and you be the preferred partner on the backside for the procedure. So what's the advantages to a virtual first partnership? Non-procedural-based specialties are loss leaders for hospitals, right? Neurology is a loss leader, so we can get to neurosurgery. Um, PT, uh, physiatry, loss leader, so we can get to ortho, right? We have to be practical and open about the reality of it. The other great thing is in, in the case of virtual first partnerships, the venture, the VCs are taking the financial risk on the startups, right? If they're pumping in $14.7 billion already in 2021 into digital health as a whole, that component of it that's virtual first, they're taking the risk on the startup as opposed to a hospital building it themselves or figuring out how to do the work. And a lot of these virtual first companies, I mean, some are 10 years ahead, right? So thinking about it in that respect. Also, the referrals are appropriate and result in procedures, right? Because we think about procedural clinics, the whole thing is how do I get patients through to find the right patients versus this is a very clear referral path because the goal of a virtual first company is to avoid procedures. And so by the time they've gotten to you, they're well vetted and ready for the needed care that they're going to get. It also has a broad geographic reach on both sides. So for one, a lot of the virtual first um, companies because they may be partnered with large employer groups who have a national presence, they have a national presence. And as a large health system who may have facilities in multiple states, here you can come with an offering that really tackles a, a very broad geographic region. So what are the requirements for the success? And I think it's important again to remember that virtual first companies, there is some absolute reticence towards hospitals for any variety of reasons. And so what's it gonna take to be that preferred procedurist um, hospital partner? One, virtual handoffs from virtual first non-procedural providers to the procedurist. And this has to be streamlined, it has to be easy, it has to be trusting, it has to work in the way that a startup virtual first company expects their patient experience, it's gonna to have to work that way in the virtual handoffs. You'll definitely inside your system need a physician procedure champion. So again, a procedure champion, what I mean by that is they're a physician who's not skeptical and questioning of the non-procedurist. They take that recommendations, they take that information, and they go on to the next step of the in-person portion. 
You're going to have to have exception of the virtual first provider tests, reports, and recommendations. Because of the contracting nature of the virtual first companies, they're showing an ROI on overall reduction of care based on their business models to the employers or the payers. And so a hospital's not going to have the luxury of retesting and redoing things. You're going to have to take the information that has come in and move on from there. Other requirements. So obviously your own virtual services are gonna to need to be streamlined, patient-centered, very easy. You will need to have virtual services for pre and post procedures as long as that's clinically appropriate. But as we've seen in the pandemic, much of that can be clinically appropriate. And also look at it like a center of excellence procedure model, right? How do you bucket within your own hospitals, within a region, these centers of excellence that will really be that procedural hub for patients to be able to come to? And importantly, price transparency. So again, because of the nature of the business models for the virtual first companies, they go direct to employers and direct to payers, and they're showing an, over, an ROI, an overall reduction of care. They're not going to send referrals to a hospital system where they can't understand what the pricing is because those referrals and that procedure is going to directly have an impact on their further contracting and negotiations because they're choosing an in-person referral partner. So in summary, virtual care isn't going anywhere. And although Sam Talks Telehealth is about virtual care and all the different things, I think what's really important is I don't want hospital systems to forget these kinds of programs are eroding what they would consider loss leaders, um, uh, you know, not the money makers, but it was always sort of the bread and butter, right? So you're taking some bread and butter money and loss leaders and you're converting them totally outside of your system where you actually have no control over it. And if we look at the amount of funding that's going on, going in there and the potential market value of all of it, it would be silly for hospitals not to want to understand, grow their own capabilities, and have a virtual first partnership so they continue to be the preferred provider for the in-person portion of virtual first companies. So that's what I've got. I'd love to know your comments. Make sure you like and subscribe to the podcast. We're here on Tuesdays every other week. And that's what we've got today for Sam Talks Telehealth. Thanks for joining us. Again, be sure to like and subscribe.